Our sermon today is taken from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17 to 34. Here is the word of God. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For, there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Thus says the Lord. All right, friends, as you know, we are currently taking a break from our longer series in the book of Romans, and we are currently doing a short three-part sermon series on the things that we as a church can't do during this pandemic season. And why are we doing a series like this? Because usually, I think, when we haven't done something in a while, we can easily forget how important they are, and also even slowly lose our appetite for it. So we want to talk about some of these things just to remind us of how important these things are, even if we haven't been able to do them for a while. So the first thing we talked about on the list we preached two Sundays ago was in-person fellowship. We talked about why that's important, and we talked about why we should long for it. And then the second thing we talked about last Sunday was in-person public worship. Why we talked about why that's important and why we should all long for it. And today, for our third And last topic of the series, we're going to talk about communion and the Lord's Supper. Why it's important and why we should long for it. Now, assuming that some of you are brand new to to church stuff, okay, the Lord's Supper is that time when at church you see people taking a piece of bread and also a small cup of wine, and we would eat it and drink it. And if you haven't been a part of something like that yourself before, perhaps you've, you've seen it done somewhere. And... 
In our sermon today, we're going to talk about why that's important, why the Lord's Supper is important, and also why I want to propose it's unwise for us to do this in this pandemic season when we aren't able to meet together in person in public worship. Okay, and, and some of you might even know that this actually is a pretty controversial topic. Right now, a lot of churches are talking about whether or not churches can do or, or should do online communion. And let me just say something before I start because of this. I just want to let you know that if you disagree with our church's stance on this issue, that, that's okay. I have a very good uh, pastor friend who disagrees with me in this issue, in our church's stance on this issue, and we're still good friends and we still do ministry together. Okay, so even if at the end of this you're not convinced, you don't agree uh, with the church's stance, we at the very least hope that you be more biblically informed as to the reasoning of why we're not doing it, and more importantly, that you would grow in your hunger and thirst for the Lord's Supper, and for you to know just how crucial it is and how important it is to your spiritual growth as a Christian, okay? So, there's three things I wanna point out from the passage about communion or about Lord's Supper. First is how does our faith grow during communion? Second, who gets to administer communion? And third, what are the consequences of communion? Okay, so how does our faith grow uh, during it? Who gets to administer it? And what are the consequences of it? First, how does our faith grow during communion? Okay, it's pretty clear and uncontroversial that Jesus in the New Testament does command his people to take the Lord's Supper during worship, right? And that it grows our faith. But how it grows our faith, I think, is often misunderstood. And because that's misunderstood, a lot of people do communion wrongly. Okay, what do I mean? Most people, I think, view the spiritual growth that happens during communion like uh, how a mushroom in Super Mario would kind of grow Mario's body. You know what I mean? Like he eats it and then he you know, levels up. His, his body grows. He gets bigger. That, that's how I think most people view how communion works. And, and if I can be honest, when I first come, came to Christ, that's kind of what I thought too. So, you know, during church, when I was a younger Christian, the, during communion, the bread part would pass by me and I would kind of keep an eye out for the bigger piece. <laughs> Cause you know, there could be something to it. I thought the bigger the, you know, bread is, the more my faith would grow. Um, and I think if we're honest, some of you have perhaps thought that as well. Okay, so if, if that's how we view growth happens during communion, then of course it would make sense for us to take communion at home, privately even, in our own rooms, by ourselves, because it's kind of like this automatic growth thing. But as we see in our passage today, that's, that's not how communion grows our faith, okay? So how does communion grow our faith? Let's start with verse 17 and 18 in our passage today. Paul says to the Corinthian church, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Okay, so quick history about what's going on in this church in Corinth. See, church services back then would be done at a house of a church member who was rich, right? Who would have a big enough house to host a, a worship service. And the other church members would just kind of come to this house every Sunday to join in and, and worship. And like us, they would go through the whole liturgy right? They would sing, they would read scripture together, they would pray, they would, they would um, preach, right? Or somebody would preach at, at the services. But then when it came time for communion during the worship service, 
there is division among them, Paul says here in our passage today. How? Well, what would happen is that in this church during communion, the rich and the poor people would eat communion separately, and they would also have different amounts. So the rich person that owned the house would invite his rich friends to sit with him in what's called the triclinium of the house, which is kind of the center part of the house, has a nice table set up right, with plenty of food that would usually accompany the bread and the wine. But then the poor church members were told to sit at the atrium, and in the um, houses back then, that would be the outdoor section surrounding usually the fountain of the house with just bread and wine for the actual communion without any other food and very little amounts of bread and wine at that. So the rich and the poor back then during communion would be segregated, eating at different locations, having different amounts of food. And that's why Paul says in verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Okay, there's different places and, and different amounts of, of food and, and, and wine. Now, here's what's really important for us to notice in verse 20. I really want us to pay attention to this. Paul said, because you guys were doing it this way, because you guys were doing it wrongly, note, he said, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. That's important. But why not? Why isn't it the Lord's Supper? The bread was there. The wine was there. Right? Everybody's eating and drinking the bread and the wine, but yet it doesn't count as a Lord's Supper, Paul says. Why not? Because there is one very important element that was missing. What was missing? The bread was there, the wine was there. Isn't that the point? No. The element that was missing was the element of togetherness. Here's Paul's point. We often think there are two necessary things that must be present at the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine. Paul's saying here, no, no. There are three. First, the bread, second, the wine, and the third necessary thing that must be present is togetherness. If you don't have all three, and I'm quoting Paul's own words here as we just read, if you don't have all three, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. So the picture of how our faith grows in communion is less like how Mario's body grows when he eats the mushroom. And it's more like how our hearts would grow when we are united together with one another, celebrating a victory. Have you um, ever been next to a random stranger watching your favorite sports team play, right? Someone from, who came from a totally different background, speaks a totally different language, and you're watching your team play, and then all of a sudden at the last minute, this, the star player of your team scores a goal, right? And you both jump up and down, and you make eye contact, and you hug one another, and this obviously takes place pre-COVID, right? And you, you give each other high fives, and you both begin to chant the team song while having your arms wrapped around each other's necks. And at that moment, you felt your heart grew a little. And not just because your team won, but also because at this very moment, you're communing with someone who came from a totally different social background, financial background, race, probably even doesn't speak the same language as you. And to be honest, while you're singing together, you thought to yourself, if I met this guy somewhere else, I'm not sure if I would have liked him. And at that very moment, as you're united with each other, celebrating a victory, your heart grew a little. Now, there's much more to it, as we'll see, but that's kind of what's supposed to happen during the Lord's Supper. The growth in faith happens because of the togetherness. 
Paul, right before this in chapter 10, said, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So it's less like how Mario's body grows while eating the mushroom. It's more like how our hearts grow while celebrating a victory with a complete stranger. If there's no togetherness, Paul says, it doesn't work. It's not the Lord's Supper. That's not the point. In this passage alone, Paul refers to the Lord's Supper in the context of coming together physically five times. You can count it. Throughout the book of Acts, never ever is the Lord's Supper described as being a private meal or something done in our own little group apart from uh, the presence of physically coming together in worship of God's people. So physical togetherness is a necessary part of the Lord's Supper, as the bread and the wine is. And we can't do that right now, right? Because we're not physically together as a church. You see, right now, the element of togetherness is missing. Now, this doesn't answer all of our questions, though, about online communion. There's another really big problem here at the church in Corinth. The problem isn't just they lacked togetherness. But if you think about it, let's get more practical here. Think about why they're missing the element of togetherness. Whose fault is it? Well, it's the fault of the one leading it. He didn't know what he was doing. The rich owner of the house said, you know, everybody's here, good. Here you go, here's some bread, here's some wine. Everybody got one? All right, let's eat. And Paul is saying, no, that doesn't count. That's not the Lord's Supper. It's more than just that. The one leading it has to know how to lead it well uh, for all the intricacies and details uh, to happen so that it would be the Lord's Supper, which brings us to our next point, who gets to administer communion? Okay, some of us right now are doing online watch parties, right? During the Sunday online service. So we're not watching this on our own by ourselves. We were actually physically gathered together in front of a TV, worshiping together, physically with one another. So, so technically, the element of togetherness is there, right? Technically then, we can do the Lord's Supper, right? So why not just get bread and wine to each online group watch party and each group can do their own communion? Well, there's a few issues with that, but one main issue is because there's no one there to properly lead it all. Okay, we just saw in this passage that if the person who's leading it doesn't really get the purpose or the theology behind the Lord's Supper, he's not gonna lead it right because there's gonna be all these small details and intricacies that they won't know how to do. And as we've seen in the passage, if they mess up royally enough, like the rich owner of this house in Corinth, it can get to a point to where it won't even count as the Lord's Supper, as we saw Paul himself say. So, so here, here's the bottom line. If you wanna lead the Lord's Supper well, Paul's saying here, you gotta know the theology behind it. You can't just know that it unites us with one another and, and therefore you do this or that. You gotta also not know why it unites us with one another you got to know the doctrine, the theology, the purpose behind it in order to lead it well. Because if you don't, then you can't lead it well, and it's not the Lord's Supper. Okay, so let's talk about that. Why uh, does the Lord's Supper connect us with one another? Well, he here's the answer. And by the way, if you're not planning on leading communion anytime soon, don't worry. Please still stick with me. I think understanding the Lord's Supper uh, better can help you have a heart that's more worshipful towards Christ. Okay, so why does the Lord's Supper unite us with one another? because it unites all of us to Christ, okay? There's a vertical union that then results in a horizontal union. Look at verse 23 to 26. Let's continue on in our passage today. 
Paul here quotes Jesus' own words as he led the first Lord's Supper with his disciples before he was crucified. He said, and when he, Jesus, had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay, so the Lord's Supper unites us to each other because he unites all of us to Christ. How? In three ways. First, memorially. Second, spiritually. Third, expectantly. Okay, memorially, spiritually, expectantly. First, let's talk about it memorially. How does um, uh, we connect to Jesus memorially here in the Lord's Supper? Well, because as we just read, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So there's a remembering aspect to it, okay? So how does the Lord's Supper connect us to Jesus memorially? Well, I've heard someone explain it this way, and I thought it was a very good way to explain it, in the book, Lord of the Rings, okay? Not, not the movie, but it's in the book. There's this uh, part of the book where Pippin, one of the hobbits, was in battle, and he was defending the city, but they're losing, they're getting overtaken, right? They're surrounded by the armies of Mordor, which were the bad guys, okay? And all seemed lost. He thought he was going to die. He thought this was the end. But then at the, at the last second, when all hope seemed lost, out of nowhere, from a distance, blew a trumpet, uh, the book says. And it was backup. Right? The, 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 the military of Rohan, which were the good guys, came and they saved the city and they saved Pippin's life. And he didn't die. And in the book, it continues to say that later in Pippin's life, even after years have passed by, Whenever Pippin would hear a trumpet blown in a distance, he couldn't help but pause and tear up. Even when he was having a grumpy day, the book says, he just can't be grumpy anymore. Why not? Because the trumpet call reminded him of that day when his life was spared. It reminded him of all the ones who died so that he could live. Communion friends should do the same for us. For the Christian, we should be reminded, now we live because someone else died in my place. And the trumpet served as a sensible sign for Pippin, meaning Pippin could sense it with one of his senses, with his ears, right? Communion also is a sensible sign. Not audibly, but you can touch it, right? You can taste he who died so that you could live. And look, in a sense, I don't want to say this to justify our sin or immaturity in any way, but in a sense, it does kind of allow us to give ourselves a little bit more grace as Christians. Because if you think about it, look, your soul hasn't heard any trumpet calls for about a year now. And that'll do something to you, you know, if you're a Christian. And it's okay to mourn that, you know, so it's okay to, to understand that I haven't been reminded of this. So the first way it connects us to Jesus is memorially. But the second way it connects us to Jesus is more than just memorially. It's also spiritually. What do I mean? Notice in our passage today, Jesus didn't say, this bread symbolizes my body or that this wine symbolizes my blood. He said, this bread, what? Is my body. And this wine is my blood. So if we're going to take Jesus' word seriously here, which I think we should, we can't say it's just merely symbolic. 
okay, but how does that work? I mean, it can't be literally, right? Because uh, uh, it can't be the flesh and blood of Jesus. Because when Jesus first talked about it in Matthew chapter 26, back when he first led communion uh, with his disciples during Passover, his actual body, his, his actual flesh and blood was separate from the bread and the wine that he was holding, that he was talking about. Like his hand didn't morph into the bread, right? And his blood didn't pour out into the wine. So in a sense, it has to be symbolic, but yet at the same time, more than just symbolism. How, how can the bread and the wine keep its physical properties as yeast and grape, but yet in a way be the flesh and blood of, of Jesus? Well, I can't get too much into it, but the quick answer is that it happens spiritually, okay? The bread and the wine spiritually becomes the flesh and the blood of, of Jesus. Now, before you think I'm, I'm cuckoo, okay, let me just take you back through the work of the Holy Spirit throughout history. And this is important, stick with me. I've done this a few times, but I think it's fascinating because it applies here too. Think about what the Holy Spirit did in the Old Testament temple. When the Holy Spirit came upon the temple, think about it, the rocks, right? The wood, the fabric that made uh, the physical temple, the temple, those materials didn't change. There was still rock, wood, and fabric. But at the same time, it also did become something more. Remember when the Holy Spirit came upon it, no one can just enter at will. Okay, only the high priest can enter. If not, you might die. You see, became something more. The physical substance stayed the same, but spiritually it became something more. Moses' staff in Isaiah 63 specifically says, Moses' staff, you know, the one he used to like do amazing things in, in the Old Testament, it was special because the Holy Spirit came upon the right hand of Moses. Now, materially, it's still a piece of wood, but it also spiritually became something more special, something different. Same with Mount Sinai, when the Holy Spirit came upon it in Exodus chapter 19, all of a sudden it became special. People can't go on it anymore, right? If you touch it, uh, uh, if an animal touches it, it has to be stoned. It's special, but yet it's still dirt and rocks. Same with um, Mary's womb. It's still a womb, but it did become something special when the Holy Spirit um, uh, was upon it. So throughout the, the Bible, this has been God's MO in making things special. Same with the bread and the wine of communion. When it's set apart, the New Testament says, the material substance stays the same, like the temple did in the Old Testament, like Mount Sinai did. But yet in a very real way, it's, it is the flesh of Jesus and it is the blood of Christ. Here's what I'm trying to say. During communion, you are united in a very real and spiritual way with Jesus in a way that you can't experience in your quiet time alone or in your personal prayer times because you're connected to Jesus spiritually in a way that means more than just symbolically, but yet not uh, without the things actually turning into the flesh and blood of Jesus. There, there's much more to talk about that, um, but we got to move on. The third way, communion connects us to Jesus, not only memorially, but also spiritually. The third way is also expectantly. Okay, look at the last part of this paragraph in verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay, you're reminded here, Christian, that Jesus hasn't yet come. So you're supposed to look forward to it, anticipate the day when he comes. And do you remember, by the way, what the Bible says will happen when Jesus comes again? What's he going to bring with him? A supper. At the end of Revelations, you see the picture here of God's people sitting around a table together with Jesus doing what? 
eating a supper. And what a beautiful supper this will be. Listen to the end of Revelations. Listen about how it's described. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Look, Christian, when you take the Lord's Supper now, in anticipation of this day, you know what's happening? As a pastor once eloquently put it, you are eating the hors d'oeuvres of your future bliss. You're eating the hors d'oeuvres of your future bliss. Every time you take communion, God is whispering in your ears that He is personally committed to getting you from this meal to that one. That's amazing. You see, the Lord's Supper connects us all to Jesus memorially, spiritually, and expectantly. And that's why we are all so connected, Christian, now. We're tied together in our present, in our past, in our future. You see, what power does money have anymore to separate us now? What power does cultural difference have anymore to separate us? What power does language, amount of Instagram followers, whether you're a supporter of Jokowi or a supporter of another political party, whether you're Team Megan or Team Palace, what power do our petty little arguments have now anymore as you and I hold in our hands the flesh and the blood of our beloved Savior? None. It has no power. Why? Because Christ, through his flesh and blood, has torn down the walls of hostility that separates us. This is the point of the Lord's Supper. And if you don't get those intricacies, you can't lead it well. Because all these matter applicably. You remember pre-COVID when we still met as a church, before the weeks we do communion, we would stop the service and have all the volunteers, all the kids even, come in from outside of our uh, worship place to the worship room before we take communion, or else it doesn't count, Paul says. You have to be together. Now, I'm not saying you've got to lead communion perfectly for it to count. Nobody can do that. But as we saw in this passage, there is a pass and fail. And at some point, if you're uninformed, as uninformed as a rich owner of the house in our passages, at some point, you can have the bread and the wine, and people can be eating it, but it won't be the Lord's Supper that you're taking. You see? And herein lies the difficulty of doing online watch party group communions. Who's trained well enough to do it? Yes, I and other trained ordained elders at CCC might could lead it in our own watch parties, but then how about the other watch parties? They'd be left out, you know, who don't have elders in them. They can't do it. This still, therefore, uh, misses the, the element of, of togetherness, unless we have 30 or 40 elders everywhere doing it for every online watch party, which is unrealistic for us right now, okay? So let's move on to the third point. There is, however, still one possible solution to this whole thing, right? We might think, what if, Tez, you just lead it from TV, from up front, okay? You lead it, you do all those small detail intricacies, and then everyone just does it after you gave proper instructions. Wouldn't that work? Well, not, not quite yet, okay? Why not? Let's take a look at our last point. What are the consequences of communion? Okay, let's continue our passage, verse 27 and 28. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Okay, so 
you have to be worthy, so to speak, to take the Lord's Supper now, not in the sense that we have to be sin sinless, right? Because we're all, yes, saved in Christ, we're washed clean, but we all still have sinful habits that entangle us, right? Um, we're all still, in a sense, uh, sinners in our habits. We still do bad things. So Paul's not saying here that, you know, you got to examine yourself and you have to be perfectly clean. Um, uh, you, you can't struggle with sin in order to take communion. He's actually saying the exact opposite. What he's saying is, you shouldn't take communion if you're not struggling with sin. If you think that you're good, you know, if you think that, sure, I can improve here and there, but there's not, nothing seriously wrong about me. If that's the way we think about ourselves, Paul's saying here, hold on, examine yourself. A good picture here is the rebuke that Paul is giving to the rich people in this Corinthian house who are sitting in the center triclinium with their mouths full of food, looking at the segregated brothers and sisters sitting outside and just have no internal reaction in their hearts toward this picture. You know, they just look at them and they continue eating and drinking as if there's nothing wrong with this and about how they're going about their life. You know, and Paul is saying, look, if, if you're looking at your own life and you don't feel like there's much to repent of, you know, if you think to yourself, yeah, I'm kind of okay in the righteousness department, if that's how you are thinking, then don't take communion. Don't do it. Go and examine yourself first. You know, why would you take communion if that's your heart attitude? If you're not broken over your sin, that implies that you don't feel like you need a savior. So why would you partake in the flesh and blood of Jesus? You know, that, that's like saying, I don't really feel like I need forgiveness, Jesus, but I'm gonna do this ritual anyways, just for the heck of it. That's insulting. That's insulting. And, and, and there are consequences of those who take communion with that attitude, with that heart, with a heart that lacks self-examination. Look at verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. You see, so the one leading communion should welcome everyone who knows they're forgiven, uh, they need forgiveness in Christ to the table. But the one leading communion must also protect the table, or a fancy word for that is fence the table from those who feel like they don't need the forgiveness of Christ. The leader must tell those people to first examine their hearts and not partake of the Lord's supper. So can I lead it from here, from TV, and then just trust everyone in their own online watch parties would fence the table properly? Maybe, but in our judgment, it's, it's too risky. Because these aren't empty words that Paul is saying here. He's saying if it's not fenced properly, there will be a form of discipline that follows. Now, this isn't like a threat from God, you know, you're going to lose your salvation or, or anything like that. Because look at what verse 32 says. We are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. This is a kind of discipline that is not meant uh, to crush you. It's meant to be a form of grace, to encourage all of us to once again mourn over our sin and take repentance seriously and appreciate our need for forgiveness for a Savior. Okay, so, so this discipline isn't meant to crush us, but still, it's not something you want to evoke out of God by flippant administration of the Lord's Supper. So th there it is. You know, I had a few goals I wanted to accomplish today. One is help you be more biblically informed about the Lord's Supper. Two is give you reason about why we're not doing it as a church. But third, perhaps most importantly, I want us to 
appreciate the beauty behind the Lord's Supper even more and for us to long and hunger and thirst for it even more. So let me just leave you all with an encouragement. There will come a day when we meet again in person as a church and we'll be able to take communion again. There will come a day when the ears of our hearts will once again hear the trumpet call, when our souls will taste the odors of our future bliss. That day will come. Okay, you'll look around holding the bread and the wine in your hands and be reminded that the size of your family is much bigger than you think. There will come that day. And it seems like we're almost there. It seems like, okay? But until then, hold on to the fact that no matter how life seems right now, Christian, you are victorious in Christ. When Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis and ate the forbidden fruit, it literally said that they took and ate the fruit. Do you think it's a coincidence that when Jesus offered up the bread and communion, he said, take and eat my flesh for the forgiveness of your sin? What's he doing there? Well, Jesus was delivering a final blow to Satan's take and eat in the garden. I've won, Jesus declares in the Lord's Supper, and my people with me. So for now, hold on to that, friends, for now. And best believe if health protocols and conditions permit the first Sunday that we meet again, we will feast in the Lord's Supper as one body, united by the flesh and the blood of our King and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, our hearts mourn the fact that we can't partake right now in communion because there is no element of togetherness. And we long for it like we long public worship in person and, and easy in-person fellowship. We desire these things and help us, Father, endure and use even this unfortunate season for the good, even as we stumble along and drag our feet through the mud of what has been a full year of almost no fellowship and of uh, in-person publicless worship and of no communion. That'll do something to the Christian soul. So it's understandable perhaps we are where we are for some of us, but help us, Father, get back up on our feet. Be reminded that victory has been won, that you have given us your flesh and your blood to take and eat, uh, to combat uh, the fall and sin. Thank you, Jesus, for your victory. Help us now celebrate it together as best as we can uh, as we sing this last song. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.